Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Frontline Events. I'm Elizabeth Palmer. I'm a journalist for CBS News, and I'm the moderator this evening for our session, session on the future of news. Uh, I'd like to begin by introducing our guests. Uh, it's uh, an exciting panel, uh, people that I've looked up to my whole career, um, and I am very much looking uh, forward to hearing uh, what each of them has to say. I'll begin by introducing Deborah Turnus. She's currently the head of NBC International, which is a brand new venture, but formerly she was the president of the American network NBC News. Uh, she had a long and brilliant career as a TV field producer. She broke a whole series of scoops and between 2004 and 2013, she served as the editor of ITV News, the first female head of network news in the UK. Deborah, welcome. Thank you very much. Shauna Thomas is a content producer for Quibi. It's a new platform based in the United States experimenting with making short form programming available on mobile devices. Uh, by the time she got there, she was already a veteran though. She was when the, uh, with the, uh, she had been with the then exciting new startup Vice News, both as a reporter and Washington DC bureau chief. Uh, and she also worked at NBC, among other things, as senior digital editor for the influential weekly Washington politics program, Meet the Press. And I think at that time you actually worked for Deb Deborah, didn't you, Shauna? I did work for Deborah. Yes, yes. We <laughs> she <were> was brilliant. <laughs> col collaborating when we had to uh, take Meet the Press in a different direction. Yes. Yeah. Welcome to you. Thank, Next, thank you very Rich much. Next, Richard Sambrook, currently director for the Center of Journalism at Cardiff University, but uh, for three decades before that, an editor and then executive at the BBC, where he was a pioneer on many projects, including the amalgamation of the radio and television news into a single operation. Uh, and later, as, as the head of uh, the World Service, he opened both the Arabic and Persian television uh, services. Welcome Hi. to you, Richard. Hi. Hi. And finally, Alan Rusbridger, the former editor-in-chief of The Guardian. He came up through the newsroom as a reporter and a diarist. Um, and then as head steered the paper through really seismic changes, he was in charge of the development and then the launch of uh, what seemed so edgy at the time, the newspaper's website in the late 1990s. Uh, almost exactly five years ago, uh, he left The Guardian and since then has worn many hats, including recently taking on, um, becoming one of the first members of the Facebook Content Oversight Board. This fall, his latest book is going to be released called News and How to Use It, A Guide to Staying Informed in This Age of Information Cacophony. Alan, welcome. Hi. Hi. So I'm going to... Um, review something that you may have seen on the events web page as a description of the issue in front of us this evening. Uh, when the internet came along, it did seem to offer a holy grail, lots of information easily accessible to almost everyone. Uh, but what, uh, 25 years down the road, it certainly hasn't turned out that way. Instead, we've got information equality, misinformation, polarization, and lots and lots of noise. So I wonder if I can ask you all in turn to take a couple of minutes uh, and just uh, address this question. What is the most important thing at this stage 
for journalists and news organizations to address in order to map a constructive way forward so that we still can live in a world of facts. Alan, why don't you kick off? <clears throat> well, the big thing is trust. Um, I mean, what you say is, is true, that, that, that this extraordinary thing has happened in the last 20 years, and some of it is terrible, some of it's wonderful, and some of it um, gives voices to people who never had a voice before. But there's a kind of information chaos around in, in which uh, people don't know who to trust any longer. Um, and that's, as we know at the moment, is a, can be a matter of, of life and death, uh, at whether we have reliable bases of information. That's gonna be doubly so in terms of climate change. Uh, now, the curious thing is why you would think that, that, that there would be this moment, there would be a safe harbor in which people would return to, to, to old fashioned um, in, in news organizations and say, well, at least we can trust them. Uh, and broadly, that doesn't seem to be happening. I mean, that's a gross exaggeration. There, there are some newspapers that are doing wonderfully. There are some public broadcasters that are. Uh, but generally, the levels of trust are quite low. And I think that's because there is such confusion in, in, in journalism itself about what we think we're doing. Uh, that's not a, a surprise, really. Um, we, we've, we've had 200 years of one kind of economic model, one kind of ownership, uh, a, a complete monopoly of uh, the, the megaphone or the printing press or, or, the, uh, or the, the broadcasting studios, and now we're in competition with everybody else. Uh, and I mean, just to take climate change, for instance, if, if, if we think climate change is the biggest story of our times and, again, a, a matter of life and death, then how well has journalism done on that? If we want people to believe that, that journalism is a reliable craft and method uh, to be trusted uh, above all the, the chaos out there. So, so how do we persuade people that journalism is uh, the, the, the answer to what is really a terrible situation in, in which we're beginning to glimpse how society has become ungovernable if you haven't got an agreed basis of fact. Well, I hope you're gonna answer your own question as the discussion progresses, but thank you for, for setting out the dilemma. Deb, do you wanna pick up? I know that you're very interested in this whole issue of trust and candor. Yes, absolutely, uh, and I think if I may have a stab at, at, at beginning to answer the question that, that Alan has posed, for me, the most important piece is uh, transparency. Because I believe, um, having done sort of a year's worth of really in-depth research in multiple markets around the world, I believe that as traditional legacy media brands, or old-fashioned, as Alan might say, um, we need to earn back the trust um, and earn the trust of new generations, but we will not do that without transparency. Um, fake news has made the audience incredibly skeptical and they are damaged and, and in trauma because of it. And they now no longer know who's trust. But what was very clear in the work that we have done is that if we are willing and we can, if we, if, if, it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big ask in, in traditional legacy media organizations, but if we are willing to pull back the curtain on the journalism we do, to not just tell them what we know, but how we know it, and to be fully honest about what we don't know, then people will begin to trust us more. Because we can no longer present the news as a fait accompli, something that we just sort of pulled out from under our desk. 
we need to take them on the journey with us in order to actually build that trust and show and share it. Um, there is some great work going on in our industry around that now. Um, I think Shauna can speak to her work at Vice News where um, filmmaking um, isn't sort of a, a, a magicked up edit at the end of the day that, that's in sort of random order. It's actually the, the correspondent and news team taking you on the journey in real time with them. So the audience has a chance to sort of see the, the work you did, the wrong turns you took, the people you met that put you back on the right path. I think if you look at um, the work of BBC Africa Eye, uh, who are doing incredible visual investigations, same at the New York Times. Um, I have a unit, uh, NBC News uh, Forensics and Verification, um, really going deep and sharing the journalism, talking about the tools they've used, showing the output of those tools to check and verify and debunk and geolocate the material, the information, so that the audience hopefully at the end of it says, oh yeah, I get that. I get how you justify those assertions you are going to make and, and want me to believe. Um, we tested out transparency with, 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 these, with groups around the world. Um, we wrote a, a transparency manifesto and made sort of seven key pledges, things that we would do and deliver. Um, and not one of them scored less than seven out of 10 because there is a hunger and a need for it. And it was very, very clear. And to end on a point of optimism, I do think that COVID-19 has somewhat renewed the vows between traditional media organizations and audiences. They have come back to the place where they know there are the resources um, to uh, check the story and verify the information before it's presented. Um, and I think that it's up to us now to actually build on that. The recent Edelman Reuters report um, sort of noted this, this sort of surge in, in viewership and, and consumption of more traditional brands, but said it's sort of doubtless um, short-lived. I, uh, being an optimist, I, I would like to think that that's up to us to actually go out there and say, no, 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 we're hearing you and stay with us because we can adapt and we can earn that trust um, to and, and, and keep you with us. Thank you yeah. very much. And I, I'm, I, I want to come back to some of what you said and certainly in the context of uh, the cost of it, because I, I take the point that transparency is uh, is uh, is a real tool in building trust, but it's it's very expensive to do if it's done well. So let's park that and go to Shauna. Shauna, what's the most important issue in the way forward as as far as you're concerned? So I I kind of just want to say what Deborah said, but <laughs> to take it one step further, I think she is right about the transparency, and I'm happy to talk about sort of how we approach that at Vice News. Um, but I think part of that building of trust again and having the transparency is, is also tailoring your product to different audiences as well as a younger audience who we need to try to figure out how to bring in to news. Um, and it's not that they're not interested in news, they get it from lots of places. And, you know, if you look at the numbers of like Vice's YouTube channel, especially back in the day, people were consuming 15, 20 minute docs that they were doing on YouTube and finishing them, which from a finishing standpoint on that on that platform is almost unheard of. So they want it, but I think they want it in different ways. So I think we have to do a much better job of meeting our audience where it is and then tailoring the product for that audience and for that platform. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't, 
I, I don't like speaking ill of like the NBC Nightly News or anything because I produced a lot of packages for the NBC Nightly News for a while. Speaking of um, the CBS reporter, go ahead. <laughs> um, but I think I think that is an example of a broadcast where a lot of work is put into it. There are really smart people who work for it, and it is still it it is still doing the same thing that it always has done. And while you know millions of people in America may still watch it that doesn't mean anybody new is coming in. So audience and platform. And when I say platform and meeting the audience where they are, yes, still have our network television news and still have our cable news, but what you what you do on YouTube is not what you do on Facebook, which is not what you do on Snapchat, which is not what you do on Instagram. And to have a chance of your news organization, division, whatever, growing, flourishing, you have to think about all of those things at the same time even if it's the same topic on all of them and you have to treat them differently. And that means that once again, gets back to your point, Elizabeth, about money and how much does that cost to do those individual things? Because a lot of times I feel organizations and some that I've worked for approach it like we can just put clips on everything. Well, you know what, that doesn't, that, that doesn't inspire people and they don't necessarily believe it and they don't necessarily click on it. So you have to, you, you, you have to start to tailor even more to people and lots of people do it, but I think it has to go even further. Um, I think news organizations inside and out have to decide they really are going to reflect the world and we are having a racial reckoning in this country in the United States right now. Um, that is playing out in multiple businesses, but also in newsrooms as we pull, as we once again pull back the curtain and realize the people still making the decisions are a lot of old white men. Um, and then I think all of this, and I think about things a lot from a political point of view, because as you said, I was, you know, the DC Bureau Chief for Vice and I worked for Meet the Press, but um, I think we have to figure out how to deal with the idea of false equivalency as well. Um, I think that in some ways, I'm not sure that's what's contributed to the lack of trust in journalism that Alan talked about, but I do think that as we try to build trust back, people don't necessarily believe us if we're like, okay, but this, but on the other hand, and I always, and I'm going to wrap up, but I always come back to this quote that I always butcher from um, uh, who used to be the CBS Face the Nation anchor. Um, Bob Schieffer. Bob Schieffer has this quote that's about, you know, we never say um, that, you know, Hitler was a bad guy because he killed six million Jews. But on the other hand, he was great for the German economy. What we say is he killed six million Jewish people in the Holocaust. And, and we support like why that was detrimental for the entire world. Um, and I should learn the actual quote, I realize, but I always come back to that because sometimes there is no other hand. And when we other hand everything, no one knows what to believe. Excellent point. Thank you very much. Richard, last uh, opening comments to you. Okay, where to begin? Uh, so, much to, so much to get stuck <laughs> okay. into there. So look, I, I completely agree with Alan that part of the problem is the huge confusion that's running rife through the industry, facing multiple challenges, economic challenges, which we have to talk about because without sustainable newsrooms, without sustainable news institutions, then journalism doesn't, doesn't persist. So we've got to talk about that at some stage. The technology challenges, we, we you know, find lots of people are talking about AI and all the rest of it. Let's not worry about that. And then the cultural issues that Sean has started to get into there. So I, I agree with all of that confusion. I agree transparency is very important. Uh, 
I have a slightly different take on it. I can remember all sorts of experiments with transparency when I was still in newsrooms as a slightly less old, whiter guy. Um, but um, uh, they didn't really work because although in principle, everyone said, oh yes, transparency, that's the answer. When you opened up your editorial meetings to the public, they kind of shrugged and said, well, that's your business. We're not interested. Just tell us what, what, we, you, know, what you think we need to know. So getting public engagement with transparency is a much bigger task than people think it is. However, I think it's part of the kind of media literacy that we need, you'd expect an educator mm. to say that, wouldn't you? That we need to get the public you know, up to a different level on. People need to understand why they should trust some places and not trust others. And that may be about accountability, uh, it may be about codes of ethics and guidelines, uh, it may be about transparency in the way they work, it may be about all sorts of things, but at the minute, most of the public just do it on emotion and do it on instinct. So there's a big issue there for them. Finally, I want, I want to come to something that Shauna was getting towards the end there, which is the, the debate about, you know, object has had its day uh, kind of this debate, which is particularly goes on in the US and, and we get the kind of hangover of it a little bit here. My personal view is that one of the problems we face uh, and social media and the internet has, has driven this is we are completely drowning in opinion and have forgotten about the primacy of evidence. Uh, and one of the things I think that news needs to reassert is the primacy of evidence over opinion. And at the minute, a lot of the public confused and don't understand the distinction. A lot of young journalists are confused and don't understand the distinction. You know, I'm doing, a, a, as people know, a project at the minute for the BBC around social media and impartiality and so on. Uh, and I'm not gonna talk about that in, in any, any detail because I can't. But I would say there is quite, there is a lot of confusion about impartiality. There was a very interesting Twitter exchange uh, off the back of um, Wes Lowry's New York Times piece where he talked about, you know, it's, we need to get to moral truth and let go of, you know, false balance and pretense that we don't have opinions and the kind of anachronistic view of objectivity and impartiality. And Tom Rosenthal came back, he wrote the fantastic book 10 years ago, the um, uh, I've forgotten what it is now, but anyway, uh, the, the elements uh, of journalism. Thank you. The elements of journalism. Um, I came back to talk about something I strongly agree with: is that actually the way people think about objectivity and impartiality is upside down. And if we don't get it the right way up, then there won't be much hope for journalism going future in the future. So impartiality and objectivity is not about false balance. That if you, if that's what it's about, people have got it wrong. It's not about pretending you don't have opinions. It's the opposite of that. It's recognizing you have opinions. It's recognizing that there are problems like false balance in the world. And it's a set of professional disciplines that you undertake to overcome those problems and raise and elevate the standard of what you do to a higher level. And I think we need to get people to understand that more so they don't say, oh, you know, the BBC's in regulated to be impartial. That's the problem. How can we get around it? They think actually it has these standards of impartiality which are professional disciplines that are really challenging for us. But if we manage to do it, boy, do we get to a different place uh, and help the public and raise the standards of our journalism to something beyond the fray and beyond the toxicity that we all experience at the moment. So I really think that the confusion around those issues is contributing to the, you know, much of the, the struggle that we're, we're facing at the moment. Uh, I've got a, a question here that shines a light on, on, on exactly what you're referring to. And Shauna kicked it off, the, the whole uh, idea of journalism as activism as opposed to uh, uh, 
pretend or real objectivity. And, and Alan, you said in some ways we have to redefine what we do or decide as journalists what we're, what we're up to and how we're doing it. John Owen has just uh, uh, sent in a question saying um, to you, Alan, and then all of you, how would you control or restrict tweeting now, say in the age of COVID and Black Lives Matter? Uh, what directive would you issue to your reporters and why? Tweeting. Tweeting. Yeah, well, um, I remember talking about Twitter to an audience of German journalists, you know, within six months of, of Twitter starting. And I, I was rather excited by Twitter and I'm still excited by Twitter. And all these German journalists said, but are you going to edit all your staff's tweets? <laughs> um, and I said, no, of course not. They, they can tweet what they like and there will be catastrophes occasionally and embarrassments, but by and large, um, you know, you, 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 the, the, the instruction is don't tweet anything that's going to end up with you as the subject on the front page of the Daily Mail tomorrow, the, or, or, or private eye. I mean, you, you use your sense as 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 journalists about what's appropriate and and the tone of voice and and the extent to which people will recognise something as your personal opinion as opposed to something that's going to affect. It's kind of sort of. I mean, you. I know lots of organisations have Im immense guidelines that that are trying to uh, clamp down on it. But but I I think. You could put it really quite simply in 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 terms of a newspaper like the Guardian. I, I appreciate that for, for something like the BBC, it, it's probably um, different. Deborah, are you equally liberal on that? So, at Embassy News, um, as as with every news organisation, um, we needed to lay out uh, a baseline so that people understood um, how we expect them to react and behave. Um, I think this is a fascinating area. I think we're entering sort of new territory now as media organizations and how to manage this um, in relation directly to the Black Lives Matters movement. Um, NBC has been very clear. We say that we don't see this as a political issue. Um, there is no other hand, as Shauna might say. Um, it's a human rights issue. Um, however, um, we have um, guidelines which discourage people from taking part in the Black Lives Matter protests on the ground and instead encourage people to use their pen and their keyboard uh, and our platforms to do good journalism and reach more people uh, because that can be of greater value and have more impact than actually going to a protest that risks you being seen, being associated, it going wrong, it becoming violent. Um, you know, some of those protests are, are sometimes hijacked by, by, by groups that you wouldn't want to be associated with. So um, that's the position on that. But I think there is a wider question um, to address, which is, you know, a lot of the people that work with me in the team that we've recently assembled for our global news operation, you know, they're in their 20s, they're in their 30s, and they see it as an important part of their personal DNA um, in terms of what they put out there on social media. They want to participate. Uh, they want to influence and have impact. Um, and therefore, we are, we are correctly asking a new generation of, of, of young journalists to leave their personal beliefs, passions and commitments at the newsroom door. And I think that didn't used to be so much of a problem. But the more natively social 
um, people become, become as they then grow into journalism, the more that I think is a challenge for them um, because asking them to put aside a very large part of the person they perceive themselves to be is, is, uh, is, is difficult. Um, and I'm interested to know what Shauna thinks about this because you, you're, you're a different generation um, and, and, uh, and maybe you, you get this, but I, I, I agree there needs to be a separation. When you say we're impartial, we need to be impartial. We're not just impartial between nine and five. We are impartial all the time and you won't find anything that's going to threaten the, the, the um, values or the reputation of this news organisation on somebody's Twitter feed. Um, and there are various things that we can do for example, you know, have a policy whereby you purge your media every three months so that nothing from three years ago is going to come back and bite us. But that day-to-day -day piece of whether or not you have the right as a journalist to participate in forums and on platforms where you would like to have your voice heard, it, it's a, I think it's a really difficult area. And Richard, I know you're very focused on this right now and it's black and white, but I just think there's an awful lot of grey in there. I'd like it to be black and white, but I just don't think the world is the way we'd like it to be on this. Anna. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that news organizations have to be very clear about when they're uh, hiring people is what is your social media policy? I'm not saying that I think it's a bad idea that, that I think BBC News is very, very clear with their staff about like what you can say and what you cannot say when you work for them. I don't think it's necessarily bad that, you know, like that vice reporters sometimes say exactly what they think about things on social media. I think some of that is is very brand specific, but I do think they have to be very clear internally about what is expected of people. And I do want to sort of address what Richard said as well is when I talk about false equivalency, I am not saying leaving objectivity behind at all. I think um, you have to be able to support with facts the point of view that your news organization or your story is taking. And I don't think, I, I don't think opinion is, is, is what I think news is. I think behind the scenes, there has to be a concerted effort that you have a news organization that researches things, that reports this out, that makes decisions about what is reportable and what is not publicly. And they have all of the facts and all of the information to back it up and different news organizations it is going to appear in, on platforms in different ways. But I always, I go back to sort of two things. You know, MSNBC primetime in, in America is very, is opinion, it's opinion driven. But I have full on belief that Rachel Maddow's team has done a ton of research and a ton of fact-based information before Rachel decides what her opinion is and she does her 10 minute rant. Um, I, I also think, speaking to what Deborah said about this hard part about leaving people's personal feelings and opinions at the door of the newsroom, it, it is a really hard conversation. And I, I am a slightly different generation um, than Deborah, but I, even at Vice, I was considered in some ways the social media police when it came to like the tweeting about politics specifically, because I was trying to build a brand that was unfamiliar in Washington, D.C. at that point. And when someone would say, like, you you want to say that this quote from Donald Trump is, is factually inaccurate or is a lie, and here's why, I don't care if you tweet that. Go tweet that all day long. But you want to just say you think Donald Trump is, is a bad word online? 
you're going to get a phone call from me because I have to work with everybody in Washington, D.C., and I have and I need them to be able to cooperate with me so I can get the information I need to tell the stories. So it's I, I think what newsrooms can do when that conflict happens is be a newsroom where people think that when they come in passionate about something to their boss, to their editorial team, to their assignment desk, that their story ideas are going to be taken seriously and they're going to be heard. And can we channel that passion that you want to tweet without any anything behind it into the kind of stories you think people want to hear? And when I when I talk about representation, I think if you have a more representative newsroom, people will be more likely to actually listen to sort of their younger journalists, help shape them hopefully to understand objectivity and fact-based journalism but also be like, I hear you when you say, no one's talking about this. So let's go talk about it. Alan, maybe you'd like to pick up from there, but, but get back to your original assertion, which if I understood correctly said, we need to redefine or work out what it is we as journalists are doing and maybe how we're doing it. What do you mean? Well, I, I think this conversation has sort of scratched the surface. It may, um, and there'll be a lot of journalists watching. Um, I, I've just written a book that tried to sort of get in more in the mind of the reader. So, you know, why, why is it that two thirds of people don't know a good source from a bad source? That, that comes from the Reuters research. They literally don't know who to believe any longer. So here we've got, you know, five, um, well, they're not counting me, four excellent journalists. Um, and we can't really agree or we're, 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 we're arguing the toss over whether objectivity or subjectivity is, is the best way of, of the best method. Uh, I, I would say um, journalists are hopeless about trying to get into the read, minds of readers about anonymous news sources. Uh, it's, it's just, uh, they're, they're everywhere at the moment and people, I think it's difficult to imagine how difficult it is to understand um, who you can believe or not. How, how we you, correct... You see them as, as, as destructive or you see the practice as destructive or at least very uh, toxic or eroding well, we, faith uh, of people. We'll, we all know why we use anonymous news sources, but if uh, a, a figure, let's say, the, this is far-fetched, I know, but say there was a figure in 10 Downing Street who was uh, fond of bringing up his, his favourite journalists in the knowledge that they would immediately tweet it uh, without uh, uh, saying, it, saying who it is. That, that seems to me rife now and, and means that we as readers have no way of evaluating what the information is, and yet it's, it's part of our craft how we correct or we don't correct or how we clarify or whether we do invis invisible mending or not invisible mending. Uh, does the, or do, do we allow the audience in, uh, in, in terms of response? Um, there are some journalists who will tell you that the, the BBC is, a, uh, is completely to not be trusted because it's subsidized. That subsidized journalism is, you know, is terrible. Other people will tell you that any journalist, any organization owned by Rupert Murdoch is, is terrible. Um, a, a Sun journalist or a Daily Mail journalist may have a very different idea of what journalism is from somebody working for the Financial Times or the New York Times or the BBC, and yet it's all called journalism. We just use one word for it. So I, I just think 
you know, and, and Richard's quite right to highlight the, the economic aspect of this um, uh, and the basis on, on which all this was paid for uh, and which all the signs are that, that that's not going to work in, in future. Um, and there's tremendous confusion about that and, and how we expect the audience to believe there's a fantastic Chinese wall between advertising and news. And yet the predominant form of advertising today is, is so-called native advertising, which deliberately blurs the distinction between advertising and news, it tries to make advertising look like news. So if, if we're so confused about what it is <laughs> we're doing, uh, and at the same time, we're saying, but you've got to trust us. Um, of course, Deborah's right to say that the transparency is, is a really important bit about that and, and pulling back the curtains. I'm, I, I completely agree that is, that's part of it. But I, I really think that um, there needs to be a much more fundamental uh, discussion about what we do. And, and, you know, what I think we do is a public service. I think it's a public service that, that the, the societies cannot function unless you have a reliable, agreed, fact-based uh, 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 agreement about, about what is true and what isn't. Uh, now, whether or not there's a business model for that, I don't know. Um, the, 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 it's, that seems a very patchy story, but that doesn't mean that society doesn't need it. Uh, and, and that gets, if, if it is then a public service, then we have to rethink an awful lot about journalism and what it's doing and the metrics that we use to measure it uh, and our relationship with the audience. And I, I don't think that conversation has really begun yet. Richard, uh, Deborah's talked about pulling back the curtain and uh, I, I, I love the idea and I love to make that kind of television myself, but it ends up making longer form and more demanding programming. And sometimes I'm frustrated because I feel that um, the audience or the readers aren't going to put in the time to appreciate the transparency, if you like. Like this is a, this takes two to tango. It, well, it does, which is why I talked a little bit about media literacy before. But if you end up in the place where you're blaming the audience, then you're, you know, you're in the wrong place. So that's never going to work. <laughs> um, and I think, um, uh, let me just say, by the way, uh, picking up on what Shauna said a while ago, Shauna made a, a, one of the best descriptions of what I would say is good journalism that I've heard uh, articulated for a while. So I will go back over the recording and steal some of that, Shauna. Thank you very much. Um, uh, but Alan's right. It's not one thing. That's the problem. And, uh, you know, we try and talk about journalism and particularly in discussions at the Frontline Club, we have a sort of very pure view of journalism in the public interest and, and so on. But journalism has always been messy and it's always been lots of different things. And much of it has always been partisan. And frankly, you know, some of it has always been corrupt. So, you know, it's always been a whole mix of these things. It's never been the high, pure gold standard of public interest journalism that, that a lot of us believe in and would like to see, um, you know, survive and believe is essential for healthy democracies and all the rest of it. So, again, I'm sorry to go, it does go back to media literacy a bit. People need to understand that they should expect different things from different places. And they may be frustrated about BBC journalism in one way because they're not getting what they want from it, but they can find what they want somewhere else, you know. So, so any media diet is going to be a mix of things. And um, so, you know, you're right in the sense that 
you know, blaming you. It's not the audience's fault, but I do think in an incredibly complex media environment, a lot of the public are not yet equipped to understand what to trust and what to find, you know, and where to find it and on what basis. And, you know, it's not surprising. We've had this huge explosion in media over you know, a very short period and it will take time for all of that, the dust to settle and for, for people to catch up. And the, the worry is where, what's left at the end of that. You know, it's the economic issue again. And although there are some, some encouraging signs, believe it or not, in terms of small startups and, you know, niche kind of newsrooms trying to find their audience and their place and the growth in subscription from a very low start and all the rest of it. Some of that, you know, you would hope would see things through, but we're seeing a massive change on the basis of journalism. The big mass public, mass audience, mass readership model is in, it seems to me, inexorable decline. And my worry out of that, which I'll finish on this point, is, is the thing I referred to before, is about institutional weight in news and journalism. Because although you can have lots of small startups who might be able to be very lean, might be able to make themselves viable out of feeding a particular specialist niche or an interest or a political niche or whatever it may be, as Alan knows far better than I do, if you want to do serious investigative accountability journalism, you need to have some serious institutional weight behind you to take on vested interests. My worry going forward is that as the old model collapses and the new model starts to try and sort itself out, we're going to lose some of that institutional weight. And I think that will be a very serious issue. Deb, maybe you'd like to respond. And I, I should encourage you to uh, bounce off one another and respond to one another without having to go through me. But what do you think, Deborah? So I'd like to pick up on a few points that have been made uh, in the last sort of go around. Um, first of all, you know, Alan was talking about you know, anonymous sources versus being more transparent. And obviously that, that is about the transparency argument. And I'd like to go back to it because I know, Richard, you sort of said transparency doesn't work because just letting the audience listen on editorial meetings or, or, or you, you yourself said, you know, it takes longer and, and, and the audience don't have the patience and there isn't the time. I, I, I don't see transparency in journalism in that way. I'll give you a very small example of something I saw recently on the BBC's 10 o'clock news. Um, it was a Laura Koonsberg lead package and she actually um, used a segment where her cameraman or per woman had filmed her on the phone um, trying to get through to the number 10 press office and then the conversation that she had and the back and forth and it was fascinating and it changed it com completely overturned the perception of her journalism and her package that day um, you felt that you had been there in a moment present um, listening to her, doing her job, asking the critical questions, um, checking the facts. And it, it, it was a, it wasn't a light bulb moment for me because I think that's how we should be doing our journalism all the time. But it was certainly a really surprising moment to see that right slap bang in the middle of a lead story on the BBC 10 o'clock news. That's what I think is transparency. I think that speaking not about newspaper journalism, speaking about television journalism, you know, video journalism, um, I feel just like Shauna that, that while um, you know the, the death of the appointment to view primetime television news uh, you know has been overstated and they, they're still hanging on in there um, they will slowly die off as people expect and deserve a different kind of relationship um, between the audience and the journalist and I think it's about um, peeling away some of those layers of gloss, you know, traditional television news 
is, is about filming all day, gathering your story, throwing it all up in the air, bringing it down in a completely arbitrary order, editing it together at speed, um, putting on some makeup, getting your hair done, uh, if you're a female correspondent, standing in front of a riser with a perfect light. And, and it's, it's very cosmetic. It, it's, it's really, you know, the grit and the stench and the, the humanity and the pain that you witness. And it's all edited out to create some perfect version um, that hangs together perfectly of, of, of what happened and what you witnessed that day. And, and, and so much of it doesn't wind up on the screen at the end of the process. And I think the audience uh, are interested, I know they are because I've heard them speak about it, to understand more of what really goes on and to see the product in a more authentic way, to have, to have journalists not just talk about what we know, but what we don't know. There's a lot we don't know tonight. What is it you, we, you don't understand about this story? Where, where are we still confused? Um, what was the challenge to your journalism today? What was the hardest thing to do for you today? Because you've been out there all day working hard to bring us the truth of this. Where do you think you failed today? Where did you not get through? We don't have those conversations. Um, some great digital reporting does, and, and, and newspaper journalism, but the medium of television news continues to um, pursue the goal of, of, of this weird, outdated perfection when the entire world is communicating on Zoom and on FaceTime and you know, video is a medium that everybody uses all the time. So why do we feel it still needs to, 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 to be this fake world? Um, I, think, I think it needs to really evolve and adapt. And that's what I mean by transparency. I don't mean letting the audience dial into editorial meetings, which they haven't got the time or the inclination to do. I, I, I completely agree with that. Just to take on also these, these, the, the, the pieces about, about um, funding. Um, I think, I wonder sometimes if we make a strong enough argument, um, not just about the cost of news, but about the value of news, um, particularly at NBC News, it is widely recognised that news and sport in, in a time-shifted world create live events every day, multiple times a day. You know, the Today Show, Nightly News. You know, um, if you want the news, you've got to come to it live. There's no point in time-shifting it. And, and it creates a different relationship with the audience. And the value of that is placed high. Um, and there is this understanding that it brings something special and particularly in moments of crisis as, as we're in now. Um, nothing else gives that. You know, I've always said news is the best drama on TV because it's real and the audience care and it impacts their lives. And I do wonder whether um, the cost of not having news is often, uh, is sufficiently often considered um, when looking at the actual cost of it. Um, and of course, Shauna's point about smart diversification. You've got to take your product to where the audience are. NBC News has invested in Quibi, which is why Shauna's back with us. You know, we, we are supplying Quibi with news. We, we, we um, invested in Snapchat and, and created Stay Tuned, an incredibly successful. In fact, it reaches more um, millennials than any other single news service um, in the United States, and it's an NBC News product. We've launched News Now, which are, we, um, today, Peacock, our streaming service, uh, went live and, and, and fully distributed. Um, news Now is a news service that streams on that and it is the number one product on Peacock. Um, multiples of other entertainment formats. People want and need news, but you've just got to give it to them 
uh, you know, where and how they and how they and how they want it. And then the other question is, should we be considering in this country to trust news organisations and liberate them more to be able to work in new, responsible and interesting ways with uh, commercial partners to be able to support and create uh, content? I'm not talking about necessarily core news maybe some documentaries, etc. Um, Ofcom regulations are very tight. I was completely liberated from that when I was running NBC News in the US and did some really interesting and genuinely valuable things um, with the right kinds of partners. Um, and I think that's about being responsible and being trusted. And you could put governance around that, um, but I think it's something that I would welcome reviewing in this country. Shauna, what do you think young people, younger people, are going to want from journalism? And how, what do you think the best bet is for engaging with them based on what you learned at Vice and what you're now learning at Quibi? And, and I, I think you've had some surprises along the way, right? Yeah. I mean, I think number one, if I actually have the answer to that question, I'd be super rich, um, but I'm not. Number two, it's spelled Q-U-I-B-I. It stands for Quick Bites. Look it up. Um, and number three, I think what they want, I think it comes back to that conversation about transparency. I think the vice style of which many people have made fun of as well, this idea that I'm going to bring you along on this journey, right? And that this journey sometimes is going to be messy and we are going to screw up and my hair is not going to be perfect in the case of women um, and men are going to wear whatever they want. And, but we are going to try to show you the process of the story while also getting to the point of the story at the same time and and try and like bring you with us to places that you cannot go or i think there is something in that now the problem with that is it's really expensive um and i had an a, a, a amazing time helping shape vice news tonight on hbo but the freedom of that particular show was backed by HBO paying about $50 million a year to Vice and us using not every penny, but almost every penny to do what we did for those three years on that network. Um, some of which was amazing and great. Some of it was silly and weird, but it was, it was it, like the freedom of HBO's money allowed everybody from researcher on up to executive producer of that show to come up with like strange, weird ideas, or have we thought about talking about, early on they did a piece uh, about Rex Tillerson where they took excerpts from the, the book that he had written about his life um, because he had done an audio book and we had an animator kind of go, like we went through it and sort of like, here's the things you need to know about Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State. But since we can't get an interview with him, we'll take the audio from that book and then we'll like animate this stuff. And we will put it on our show, but we'll also put it on social as a way for you to learn. So I think it's, let me take you on this journey. And then also let me explain how things work. And a lot of the work I did as a correspondent for Vice was really just explainer stuff from Washington, D.C. Um, and one of the things I did that got the most play was early on when people were sort of talking about let's impeach President Trump, um, the 25th Amendment was a big thing that first year in 2017 where people were like, can't we just use the 25th Amendment? And I just sat down and we, with really simple graphics, we wrote, here's why your conversations about removing via impeachment or removing via the 25th Amendment 
are a little bit short-sighted because you don't actually understand how this works. So let me just explain it to you. And I was told later that like staff assistants on the Hill passed it around because no one had ever explained it to them before. <laughs> and basically, and in the end of the piece, I'm like, the 25th Amendment is not happening, guys. Um, I take a, I, I did take a position on that, but I said it because of all these other things before. And I, and I'm not saying there isn't a place for nightly news or the Today Show or any of those other things, but I'm saying those two things of explaining, which also involves showing your work and taking you on the journey, which also involves showing your work, I think plays to the audience. And I think they're willing to sit down and watch something long or short, depending on the platform, as long as you bring it to them with that level of honesty. What about, let's get back to Richard's point about the institutional weight, uh, uh, the necessity of having great big players in the arena who can fund investigative work and who can uh, fund, as you said, Shauna, you know, experimental uh, initiatives and so on. Alan, are we in danger of losing the, the great big players and having this sort of granulated, scrappy, uh, arena where that stuff doesn't happen anymore and it's all much more fast and ephemeral? Uh, yeah, I mean, the answer is yes, on, on, on all counts, that, that uh, it's expensive, it's messy, it, it's, um, it, it's, um, it, it, it's uh, you lose sleep at night, it, it's, uh, it, uh, it, it's, it's complicated. Um, and and it's expensive. So so usually management's um, you know it's the first thing to go. But I completely agree with with what Richard said that that um, that there's no point in in writing or broadcasting stories if you can't defend them. Uh, and in, increasingly we 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 see how powerful individuals and and corporations. Uh, pick, pick journalists off uh, and, and defeat them through money or through law or through threats or in more oppressive countries by simply taking over the, the newspapers. Or, uh, so in the, in the kind of work that we were doing on things like phone hacking and tax avoidance and, and uh, Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks, uh, we came under immense pressure and uh, it's it's sometimes not pleasant it's sometimes prohibitively expensive but 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 unless you can defend those stories then there's literally no point in doing them in the first place and I have great worries over uh, institutions as great as powerful as the BBC who I, I think the signs are I'm afraid that they have been intimidated over the years um, by 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 governments and by the, the threats of funding and by the use of you know quasi judicial inquiries and so forth, uh, and so e when you've got even organisations uh, as great as the BBC, uh, I, I think sh showing evidence of uh, pulling in its horns, then we should worry. I do want to jump in with one thing about major yeah. brands like the BBC is that something I have learned from Quibi that I was personally surprised by as, as an executive who's in charge of a lot of our news partnerships is BBC News produces a show for us that is fantastic. So thank you uh, across the pond. Um, but that and the NBC News programs that we have on the platform are both performing very well. And I went into the job thinking 
that like, okay, we'll do news. No one will care. They'll be, they'll gravitate towards the celebrity on the platform. They'll watch the entertainment stuff. And maybe in six months to a year, someone will realize that we have been producing news shows every single day for the last year. And we'll start to think of it as someplace they want to be. And kind of right off the bat, people gravitated towards the brand of NBC and the brand of BBC. And the numbers have been consistent. I can't tell you what those numbers are or I will be fired, but, um, but there, there is still something there where people see those letters and it, and it makes them think they're going to get something that they want and something that they need. Um, and I think for both of these companies, it's good that they are trying out these new things. But it sort of proves what I think it was either Alan or Richard said wasn't, they didn't think was happening that the old traditional brands uh, weren't the beacons, the lodestars that they used to be. But actually what you're saying is in this big, you know, uh, ecosystem of programming, people turn to them for the facts. That's good news. No. I, yes. No, I was trying to say there is, there is good news that the, the brands do still have some kind of, and it's fallen off a great deal, but some kind of trust and some kind of cachet that's at least on this very limited platform that we have thus far allows these shows to perform better than a, a bunch of the entertainment things that we have. I, I completely agree. I completely agree with that. And, and you know, any, any criticism of BBC is, you know, sometimes, uh, what it seems to me is a, a, a lack of boldness. It, it should be qualified by saying it is, it's, it's a massively, easily the most trusted news brand in, 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 in the UK, and, and rightly so. It, I mean, it's, and in America, it's one of the yeah, most trusted news it, brands. It's, it's a, and, yes. and that's, it is mind-boggling to me that the British government is, is playing with the idea of dismantling the, the funding model of the BBC because it's a, it's a really good model. It, it is public service, is what I was talking about earlier. Uh, well, and also and, in, in a world of soft power, when, when yeah. you know, so many nations are investing in, you know, global news operations like RT, TRT, CGTN, yeah. you know, to name a few. Um, yes, to, to imagine that you would dilute the, the, the voice and power of BBC when it's actually something that plays so well in a post-Brexit world, as, as, as Britain needs to have a voice out there. Uh, incredible. There's all that, that trust out there. I think what you were just saying... Um, about sort of the startup and these organizations, you know, Ben Smith, who's now a media writer for the New York Times, but who actually launched BuzzFeed News in his maiden article going over to the New York Times, he spoke about how he'd been so arrogant launching BuzzFeed, thinking that they were going to take over the world and they were going to, you know, they were going to destroy all these legacy media brands that, you know, they didn't know how to, how to do news today and, and they were so outdated. And there he is, you know, BuzzFeed News is kind of, uh, no more, and and he's joined the New York Times, and he was very funny about it. But I think it, it did say something that BuzzFeed was the biggest story in news in the U.S. for a period, but it was a it was a flame that burnt very bright, but for not very long. Um, and and for those of us who who, who remain in the sort of um, you know, traditional legacy brands um, can take some comfort from that. I think. But, yeah. but, but it is incumbent upon us to evolve and adapt in order to, in order to, to stay fresh. I think that's, that's the lesson there. And the New York Times has done such a good job of reinventing itself huh. to become one of the great legacy brand successes of our age. Yes. 
It has. I I, I can't help feeling we are still sort of dancing around the elephant in the room a little bit because all of that is true, and and big brands still have a lot of trust, thank goodness. And you know, the last Reuters Institute survey said something like 76% of people still want news without an agenda if they can find it. So although there are these politicised extremes, there's a lot of people who do want public interest news in the way Alan defined it. But we're in a post-COVID world with a crashing economy. Uh, you know, fresh redundancies day in, day out. You know, the BBC News's 450 redundancies have now gone up to 570 or something because of what they've been doing during COVID. Local newspapers in America and through the UK are laying off hundreds of people and local news provision is collapsing. And, and you know, the economic, you know, gulf that we're, we're falling into, we don't know how deep it is and we don't know how we're going to get out of it. But the notion that there is going to be investment in news uh, and that, um, you know, people other than, you know, nation states are going to be able to uh, invest in, 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 in loud voices, you know, just isn't, isn't being real at the minute. I'm picking up on what yeah. Christine Lamb said in the chat column there. You know, yeah. I, mean, I mean, Russia, yeah. China and, you know, Middle Eastern countries can afford to pump money in. The BBC is publicly funded and therefore is, is still got some, some, some weight to it here as long as that funding uh, model is, is maintained in some way. But outside of that, we are facing a really, really tough, uh, you know, certainly few months and probably a decade, I would say. Uh, and I just, I'm, I'm not optimistic about what comes out the other end of it. You're not? No. Is anyone? Deb, are you? No, I think that's an incredibly uh, accurate and articulate uh, portrait of where we are today. Um, and, and you're right. Uh, even if up until COVID, I saw us investing more and more in investigative journalism, etc., going forward, you know, the economic picture is, is, is bleak. Um, and who knows where that will leave, leave any future investment in news. Um, and, and it is incredibly worrying. Therefore, what do we do? How, how do we diversify? How do we get to where the audience are? Um, and how do we continue uh, to commit and invest in, in news? You know, and, and is it about, you know, obviously it's, it's not, not for BBC, but in terms of commercial news, is it about freeing, freeing organisations up to, um, to, to work with outside entities, tr trusts, you know, uh, foundations to find new sources of income um, that are safe, but would require more flexibility than, than there is in the market right now. I, uh, I arguably, if if great seismic shifts are taking place now from uh, racial discussions in America to uh, uh, public health initiatives worldwide to the end of uh, oil and the great fight over climate change, arguably there's never been a time in my lifetime when good journalism, fact-based journalism, uh, is going to be more important to help uh, societies make the right decisions and individuals to understand what's going on around them. So what's the way for, what are some constructive things that can be done, concrete things to can I help? Can briefly, Elizabeth? I yeah, mean, I think one, one of the things that is, you know, get, getting back to the knitting a little bit. And I think what COVID uh, has proved over the last few months as we've seen TV news audiences shoot up and all news or, you know, audiences online elsewhere shoot up, is that you know, people 
have a real appetite and hunger for good news and information and solid news and information when they need it. And it may be when the times are good, they don't need it so much and they don't go to it so much. But I think if, if, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think is behind the lack of trust is that people don't feel that newsrooms are doing what they need them to do enough. And, and so maybe one of the great things during, I think the COVID period is I actually think it's been some fantastic journalism during the COVID period in, you know, looking at international trends, you know, picking apart what's happened, picking apart the different strategies, holding governments to account. And I think that's, that has met the need of the public in what they're looking for. So part of the answer about trust and part of the answer about getting subscriptions up and part of the answer about getting numbers up to bring, hold some advertising up is about doing more, better, stronger journalism. And I know that sounds a little bit, you know, of a patsy answer, but I definitely believe it's true. It's about getting less diverted by the ephemeral, or by celebrity, and by what's fashionable this week, and doing more about the core of what drives to the heart of people's lives. And picking up just briefly on something Sean has said earlier, diversity, which we haven't really talked very much about, you know, we are now, if we don't understand it now, we never will, is hugely important to that. And you know, every newsroom I know of is struggling to think about how they really resolve the diversity issue they've got. Speaking as a journalism school that feeds the business, we struggle to get diversity of um, students through in recruitment. I think that's a massive issue as well. So, so doing really great journalism that serves the public first and appetite for it and you know, getting more diverse newsrooms that are in touch with communities and understand what people want has got to be a part of the answer. We've had a question here for, that, asks, that asks, how do I, as a news consumer, somebody who uh, it really recognizes the value of facts in my life, this is Rebecca Payton, what can I do uh, besides writing to my MP to defend the BBC? But is there something that news consumers who are concerned ought to be thinking about? Alan? Yeah, I, I think it. I, I think. Um, I mean, the, the most basic thing: nobody should retweet anything they they haven't checked out is true. You know, otherwise, we're all part of the problem. So, it, it, it's at the uh, a mass information system um, working at that kind of scale, we all have individual responsibilities as to what we what we challenge, what we we don't uh, carelessly um, add to the problem. I've seen one or two questions in the in the chat column about the role of education, and I think we're going to have to start teaching kids very young, you know, seven or eight, to, to begin to be better discerners of of what truth is and what isn't true, and how they can tell the difference. Uh, so I think education is going to have to be a big part of it, and and the sort of era when we scoffed at media studies and said that wasn't a proper subject. It's absolutely fundamental to the to the to, to the health of democracies. Um, I mean, just to um, pick up on, on on one earlier point. I mean, this this modest experiment in local democracy r reporters. Um, so it's about I think about 150 million. Richard would know better than than me, which is going into uh, local reporting, and that's a, the beginning of saying well. If if you have communities without news, is is that something that we can really tolerate? To have nobody in the courts, nobody in the council chambers, nobody looking at planning inquiries, nobody looking at uh, health services or or the police. Uh, and I think most people would say that's highly undesirable. We probably have to make that case a bit more strongly. I think it, it was 
uh, it, it was Deborah's phrase, the cost of not, not having news. Uh, what, what does that do to society? And, and I return to this, this uh, again, uh, five or six years ago, people said, oh, we could never do that. That's subsidized news. And, and, and that people wouldn't trust that. Yet at the same time, BBC is a form of subsidy. And we know that's the most highly trusted form of news. So this link between clicks, profit, advertising, uh, uh, you know, pilotize, sell it cheap, uh, entertainment uh, and opinion, all the things that produced a compelling package. I think Richard's exactly right. We have to have a, a much more fundamental uh, starting point, which is what, what do people actually need? And if we, if we can't learn that lesson in the middle of COVID, when news becomes a matter of life, life and death, uh, then we're not seizing this moment. You know, can I just um, come in there? Because you're really making me think that, 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 of course, we talk now a lot about media literacy because we want people to understand um, how everything works and to be able to discern between fact-based journalism and fake news. But just as we've had sort of the climate awakening, we're going through a racial reckoning. There isn't a mainstream um, concern out there about this issue, that we have these conversations amongst ourselves and in our own sort of cloistered Zoom chats, etc. cetera. Um, but, but out there uh, on the street, I'm not sure we have found a way to take this to the wider population and to articulate the jeopardy and the danger of, you know, is fact-based you know, free news an endangered species? Um, is it something that we should be uh, making sure that people cherish and value and understand that if it's no longer there, how different the world will be? Um, and I just wonder how, how that movement um, is created and how you, you, you have some much more audience friendly uh, messaging around it, uh, sort of marketing campaigns uh, around it that might see people gravitate towards it and, and want to protect it themselves. Shauna, you're, you're in the belly of the beast in some ways. There's probably the truth has not been ever so hotly contested and distorted as it is in the United States right now. What, what would you say to that? How, how, how is there a, a growing feeling that truth matters or facts matter? Or is the battle already lost? I'm not willing to say that the battle is already lost. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 hopefully it is not. Um, I, the problem in the US right now with that conversation is that it's so wrapped up in politics that when you use something like the term, tr the truth matters it is kind of seen as like the anti fake news and so then people like get into their corners and frankly then that entire conversation goes back to media literacy which then goes back to the wider conversation um th that i that i think is very much so an american conversation about how we educate our children um and how we how we teach them what facts are but how we teach them everything and i, I do think that if we don't have and in some ways, COVID-19 has brought so many things in into like into the spotlight on the stage. 
between haves and have nots and the economic situation and healthcare situation. And it is like pulling people apart, but it's also because we're having a conversation about how do we go back to school? Like education from such a very young age is a really big part of thinking news is even something you need in your life. Um, that I, I don't quite know how we solve this problem right now, because I think it has to do with how do we invest in our children uh, who are currently in the womb of people that I know, you know what I mean? Um, so I, I, people are struggling with that conversation because I, I don't, because when you start to say to someone, well, let me teach you about what facts are, especially if they are over the age of 12, then you sound incredibly condescending <laughs> and they hear that. So it is a weird catch 22 that I think about a lot that I don't have a great way to solve it. I, I am interested in what Deborah said about marketing and how do you explain to people that this is that this is important. And I do wonder if it goes back to the transparency conversation and kind of pulling back the curtain of there are real human beings who do this work, who are not just a cog in some government wheel, who are not just a cog in some major corporation um, like Viacom's will, um, that they are really trying to figure out what is going on in the world and give that information over to you. And if you could get people to sort of trust in the idea that like individual humans are not usually that bad of people and they usually take their jobs and their lives pretty seriously and their families pretty seriously, then that, that might help people be able to connect to the stories better and connect to the idea of the news better. And if you think about it, Sean, you know, the, the, it's a very different environment in the US to, to the UK, yeah. but you know, the New York Times tagline is, you know, the, the truth matters. You know, the, the Washington Post is democracy dies in the dark. And that's a kind of marketing around truth and fact-based journalism uh, and the quest for the truth and investing in the quest for the truth. And they are driving subscription numbers up uh, because people are sort of joining almost a movement when they do that. Now, as we've just said, that's a very different environment politically, socially, culturally right now, particularly. Um, but how might we be able to do that in this market and, and create making around the importance of investing in truth? Uh, to drive up subscriptions uh, and participation. I think this is a really important part of the conversation, and I, I very much agree that it's about you know how we articulate the value of of you know serious and public interest journalism. The difficulty is that in the states, the Washington Post, the New York Times, they've kind of done it by coming down on one side of the divide. Mm. And certainly for regulated broadcasters in the UK, you can't do that, and then it becomes a lot more difficult. So you know they said, okay, we're going to be we're going to market ourselves to this crowd because we think we can make a are living out of that crowd and we know that we're going to lose that crowd over there because they won't buy into it but well that is you know that may work in business terms and if so that's fine but it's not doing the kind of mass model and it's not doing the regulated model of news for everybody and i think it's a problem but the bigger issue is i do think that the the journalism and news somewhere lost touch with the public and and you know lost the ability to articulate its social value and for people to really mm. understand why 
it mattered. And it's probably because, you know, newsrooms and media became so self-regarding during the 90s and the early 2000s and became kind of soaked up into the, you know, the bubble too much. And, you know, that's part of the lesson we've learned over the last few years. And it goes back to the diversity issue that we've touched on before. And I think there's a really fundamental thing that we, we are in the middle of learning about, about that side of it. There is a socioeconomic self-selection for people, at least in America, that go into journalism because, nice. well. because the jobs in, in print and digital and television at lower levels pay so badly um, that if you, if you especially come from an immigrant family and you're the first person to go to college or you come from a minority family and you're like the second generation to go to college, this idea of going into journalism doesn't seem like a concrete thing. And this was something that I, I struggled with with my parents for a very long time, which was my mom did not stop asking me if I would go to law school until I literally introduced her to President Barack Obama. <laughs> so, but that has to do with how different, but what happens is that means that there's a lot of diversity that doesn't even make it into the pipeline because of how we conduct these, these, these businesses. On that very thoughtful uh, note, I'm going to have to wrap this up because we've ran out of time, but Shauna, uh, our, our wonderful uh, Mario at the club found the Schieffer quote. Shall I read it to you? Please read you it to hear me. It? Yes. Hear it? Okay. Well, uh, you talk about being fair. It's much easier to be fair than to be objective. We all have a point of view unless we're on some sort of life support system. But being fair means presenting both sides of the story. However, I think we have to remember that sometimes objectivity doesn't mean, for example, saying, well, Hitler was a pretty bad guy, but on the other hand, he did start up Volkswagen. The objective view of Hitler is that he is the most evil person in the history of the world, at least, that I, at least that I know of. And so I think sometimes we have to remember to do that. I mean, if something is a lie, it's a lie, and it's our responsibility to say it. It's words to live by. <laughs> words Love to live by. Thank you all very much. Uh, I don't know that we had, got a lot of concrete answers, but a lot of food for thought, a lot of stimulating ideas. And I really want to thank all of you for joining me this evening and all of you who uh, joined in to listen. It's been wonderful. Good night. Thank you so much. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you for coming. Good night. Thanks. Good night.